I think in terms of having a diverse pipeline, it really is just a matter of existing and being yourself and being open to connecting with people, not based on how they self-identify, but just the fact that they are building something great and you want to learn more about it. That's the voice of Monique Villa, an investor at Mucker Capital and co-founder of Build and SE, a hub for startup founders and ecosystem partners in the Southeast. With a degree in humanities and arts and an early love for startup culture, Villa now uses her knowledge and passion to help future venture capitalists find a seat at the startup world table as co-founder of VC Up and Comers. I'm Bryn Plummer, Vice President of Equity, Inclusion, and Community at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, and your host of the podcast, Twin Day Rethinking Entrepreneurship. Twin Day is Kiswahili for Let's Go. It's our rally cry here at the EC. It represents the vibrant passion and strategy of Nashville's entrepreneurs who continuously strive to grow their businesses. It's also the name of the EC's program dedicated to leveling the playing field for entrepreneurs of color. This show is a production of the EC, and it's all about engaging in open and honest conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. Did you know that less than 3% of venture capital in the U.S. goes to Black, Latinx, or woman-led companies? Today, Monique joins me to discuss this issue by exploring the topic of venture capitalism and how the upcoming launch of her new venture, Unprocess, aims to alleviate this ongoing issue. We will also discuss the lack of funding and opportunities for BIPOC entrepreneurs, individuals who identify as Black, Indigenous, and people of color, to freely experiment and fail forward in pursuit of business growth. Before we dive into today's conversation, we would like to extend a special thank you to the generous support of the David and Rebecca Clements family for making the podcast, Twin Day Rethinking Entrepreneurship, possible. Hi, my name is Monique Villa. I'm an investor with Mucker Capital, leading our Nashville office. I am born and raised Long Beach, California. Spent my life in LA up until four years when I packed up and moved across the country to Nashville. And in terms of my day to day, I'm meeting with incredible entrepreneurs from across the US into Canada and now down into Mexico, specifically focused on early stage companies, pre-seed, seed, and series A that are building outside of Silicon Valley and across North America. So that is uh, my life in a nutshell. And outside of the day-to-day, I'm also the co-founder of an organization called Build an SE, which stands for Build in the Southeast, and really thinking through how we can coordinate at the regional level to really support the stakeholders here that are building and scaling companies across the Southeast in the 10 mm. states that we're, we're tracking. Mm. And I'm always curious how people get into the world of venture and, and startups because we come from a lot of different backgrounds and industries, right? And you in particular, you have this background in, in humanities and in the arts. What got you into the venture space and the entrepreneurship space? Yes, I love this question. I realize that the answer predates anything that I typically give credit to. And it really was, I've been fascinated by business since my very earlier, earliest years. <laughs> I started several businesses in my house that was trying to sell things to my parents and various pop-ups and so forth. It was definitely an only child kind of game. I was a second family 
only child in the second family circuit. And so I had to find ways to entertain myself. And I was fascinated by places like Staples that sold business supplies and receipt books and how, how did all of this work and visiting small local businesses around Long Beach. And I was just fascinated by it. So that's really where it started. And my mom was a bookkeeper for businesses and had been a banker and a teller for many decades prior to her bookkeeping life. My dad worked for the county assessor's office. So more traditional kind of long-term multi-decade career there. Retired when I was in second grade, but I came from two parents that had worked in and around office settings and business, and I was just fascinated by it. So fast forward, and, and the light bulb moment for me was really when I was in college. I went out to study business and did not love business econ. I thought it was painfully boring, and I ended up looking for an internship and, and secured a full-time internship with Tom's Shoes, and that was really my foray into true kind of uh, startup entrepreneurial community types of things. And so I, at the age of 19, dropped out of college and went and took this full-time internship and the rest was history. Oh my gosh. I don't think I realized that transition from, you know, college straight into the world of Tom's. And then I imagine your experience at Tom's introduced you to what it's like to be at a, a place that's sort of on a rocket ship. Mm-hmm. And then that jump to venture, how did that come about? Yeah. So I reluctantly wrapped up my internship to return to school. And that was a tough thing to, to step away from, honestly, when you're in this really exciting day-to-day setting, making no money, racking up lots of debt. It's like, okay, I guess I have to go back to college and just iron this out. So I uh, finished school and right out of school, started thinking about where to work. And I found just really randomly an opportunity to join a small boutique consulting firm that worked with startups in the entertainment space. So film, TV, music, all focused on digital entertainment specifically. And we were doing BD and strategic partnerships for those startups. So I jumped in day one, had really kind of repetitive tasks, which I think I would attribute most of my workflow to today was just working through long spreadsheets of contacts and names and figuring out who does what and how they were relevant to our business. Really cut my teeth that way. And then started to be a little more client facing with startups. And in that, I started attending some events around what was really nascent in LA, referred to as Silicon Beach. And there were the Silicon Beach happy hours and events. And that's really where I started networking for the very first time. And from one of those networking events, I met my next would be boss who was starting a first time fund and explained that they were really a startup as well. They were in month five, they were building the team, they were hiring for everything. And that was my first foray officially into venture. What was that like? I imagine being in this emerging market of Silicon Beach, you know, obviously on the West Coast where a lot of funding is concentrated in the venture world, but certainly down in in Southern California, very different climate. What was it like to be a part of that nascent space? Yeah, it was nascent is the right word. It was really early days. And I don't think I realized it at the time. It felt big and exciting to me. I was branching out of my hometown of Long Beach. I was spending time in LA and different parts of LA and Santa Monica. But in reality, 
tech and venture was very small back then. We're talking 2012, 2013. And the really prevailing industries in LA were all centered around entertainment. And that's, that's where tech was sort of, I always describe it as sort of the weird step cousin or, you know, kind of very <laughs> far away from the meat and potatoes of, of the industries in question. And over time started to become more integrated into the fabric of LA. And I think at the time there would be the one event, right? Like the one happy hour or maybe some other smaller meetups, but they were really informal. And uh, in terms of access to capital, it was so early. Silicon Valley was really the the gorilla in the room. And we were always in the shadow of Silicon Valley being north of us. And in LA, there were really just a few, a handful of investors. And Mucker actually was one of the early ones that joined that cohort in 2011 and, and hit the scene. But before that, there were very few investors that were actually active. GRP Partners is the longest running venture fund now called Upfront. They had really been one of the few institutional venture funds. And then outside of that, it was mainly Angel Networks at the time. Mm, okay. It actually sounds really analogous to a market like Nashville. So it, it, yes. that bridge between your time there and then, you know, the time that you, I guess, what drew you to Nashville. Did you move to Nashville to start the Mucker branch here or was it something else? No, I moved to Nashville for purely personal reasons. My husband and I were thinking about being somewhere other than LA and he was coming here for music. He works full-time in, in the music industry and I was just itching to get experience outside of LA. I had never left LA. I'd, I'd spent my entire Whoa. life in LA, went to school there, uh, just never left. And many of the people in LA are transplants. And so I was one of the oddball natives who had to explain <laughs> that I truly had grown up there and my parents had been there since the fifties. And, and so I was just itching for a new experience and came to Nashville, fell in love with it pretty hard, very quickly on day one. And then we decided to move. But Mucker came into the picture about nine months later. Got it. Okay. One of the things that I find interesting about you, Monique, is you've come to the city, Nashville. You're not a native, but you've really made a name for yourself and made a place for yourself and established I think from your outside perspective, what it is Nashville needs and you really look to as a voice in this space of startups and venture capital and tech and entrepreneurship. I also think you stand out because you're one of the few Latina women in that space, in a space that is is not very visibly diverse, even though we know we're out here, people of color in this entrepreneurship space are out here. I'm curious what your experience has been like thinking about all your different identities in this world. Yes, that is a great, great question. And also, thank you for the lovely compliment as well. <laughs> I am honored. And yeah, I think in thinking about venture capital and entrepreneurship as a whole, there are so many traditional trappings that I think we all know to be true. You have the Ivy League mousetrap, right? Like if you have a more traditional background, you're probably coming from an Ivy League education, probably coming from a very specific professional background. Most go to consulting or investment banking, have maybe family members who are involved in entrepreneurship or specifically venture capital or PE or what have you. And then you also have the 
the demographic data when it comes to, you know, ethnic background, upbringing, gender, sexual orientation, you name it. So as it relates to myself, I am none of the above. (laughs) I uh, am biracial, half Mexican-American, half white. Both parents grew up poor. One in New Mexico, rural New Mexico, picking cotton and, and doing farm kind of day labor type work. The other coming from parents who grew up in very rural Oklahoma and then settled in Southern California. And I went to a state school. I went to UC Irvine, UC Regents. The network of schools that I thought were insanely aspirational when I was growing up in Long Beach. And when I entered the business world, have been told point blank that I went to a poor or low quality school. So there's a lot there I'd say to unpack. And then also as a woman, which really there wasn't much space for even having as a topic or point of discussion until maybe only a couple of years ago when when All Rays came on the scene in Silicon Valley and started to really challenge and, and look at real data that we didn't have before in terms of who was doing this work, who had representation at the check writing level, who was coming up the pipeline and so forth. So there's a lot there. And I think in terms of navigating this industry, you can find yourself facing any one of those questions or even being challenged in some capacity on any one of those points on any given day. And I think when we're thinking about different geographies and Nashville and the Southeast and even the Midwest, it really does come down to numbers. How many funds are there? How many firms have diverse representation at the partnership level or below? How many of those funds are representing diverse LPs and and their limited partners themselves as a fund? How many founders are they talking to in a given calendar year who are diverse in one or more of those ways. There's a lot of data that's starting to surface for the very first time. And I think we're at the jumping off point of something that's going to be truly transformative in the coming decades. Mm. It sounds like there are multiple layers and levels within the space where we need to affect change to make it a more equitable environment. And just in case we have any listeners who might be kind of outsiders to this world of venture capital, could you just in a short couple sentences explain what is venture capital? And then when you say something like a, you know, a limited partner, what does what does that mean? Sort of what's the structure of a fund? Yeah. So the funny way of answering this question is that venture capitalists are have one job and that is to sell money, which is a really funny job to have, but it's also the truth. So we effectively as a fund will fundraise a certain amount of capital commitments from what's what are called limited partners and there's different profiles specifically of limited partners there are high net worth individuals sometimes individuals sometimes it's you know the spouse or you know whoever that that represents their money you have institutional lps or limited partners which are more like endowments foundations pension funds and so forth you can also have corporate LPs, so corporations who are making capital commits from their balance sheet. And beyond that, you can also have a fund of funds LP, which is actually a fund who invests in other funds. And so hence the name fund of funds. And so 
what you do as a venture capitalist is you go out, gather commitments that say, okay, we will raise a fund of 40 million, 50 million, 250 million, what have you. Those LPs are committed to providing that 250 million in capital over the life cycle of that fund's duration. So many funds are 10 years. And so you gather those commitments and then you turn around and have to follow your fiduciary responsibilities as an asset manager to deploy those funds in the form of making investments into startups. And so that is usually over the course of the first three years of the 10-year fund cycle, making your first investments. And you go out and you meet entrepreneurs and you figure out based on everything that you're seeing, which of those companies are you satisfied with from a risk profile and you know, in what capacity do those startups match your thesis as a fund? And then you can make commitments to those companies. And now you're effectively partnered with them for the duration of that investment, whether it's several years, whether it's the 10 years, whether it's longer. So it's really a long form patient capital game and less mm. in the moment than what is probably portrayed in TechCrunch articles. <laughs> yeah, hearing you say that ten year cycle, three years of of raising and and getting to know you know the potential entrepreneurs that you would invest in, and then it sounds like seven to ten years for the return to hit. Is that right? Yeah. So the the first three years of the ten year cycle is deploying the first checks, and then usually there's some portion thereafter where you're making follow on investments. So after your first investment, you might allocate additional funds into those companies and those companies alone until you've allocated the full amount of the fund that you've raised. And then the last couple of years is usually thought of as like the harvest period. So that's usually when exits might, may or may not be happening or you're exiting your position as an equity holder in that company. But sometimes it takes longer than that. And there's lots of different really boring legal explanations as to how you kind of manage those cases. Got it. Got it. Perfect. And then when you think about all these different layers to a fund and to this world of venture capital, obviously for most startups, the reason they turn to venture capital is so that they can get growth money to continue to grow, build their idea, so on and so forth. And we know so little existing venture capital is going to businesses owned by women, startups owned by people of color, particularly Black and Latinx and Indigenous people of color. Um, what is happening in the VC world that gives you hope and excitement about that becoming a much more inclusive field? Yes. So one thing is that we're even highlighting it as an opportunity for folks. I think before it really wasn't a topic. And there are several touch points, I think, over the last couple of years where this has really been brought to the surface. And so I think identifying it as an opportunity is where we have to start having data to tell that story and to say, look, we know for a fact now that if you have a diverse, and I'm using the word diverse in air quotes, but if you have <laughs> an underrepresented investor on an investment team, that their commitments to companies are into companies that are led by underrepresented founders and CEOs at a much higher rate than non-diverse investors. We have the data and it's, it's significant. And so the opportunity now is to get people into those check writing roles. And part of that is really accelerated by new fund formation. And we're seeing more of that. 
we're seeing LPs stand up and say, we want to back diverse general partners and diverse founding partners at venture firms. And then those people are recruiting and hiring diverse investors who are then also attracting and investing in diverse founders. And so that flywheel getting started is is critical and it's happening now. How do you source entrepreneurs who are people of color, women, LGBTQ+, just more uh, build a more diverse pipeline of entrepreneurs? So the funny thing is that people who might be let's say white male investors, they will ask this question all the time. And people who are not white male investors already know the answer. The answer is you just exist, right? Like you just don't focus only on white male CEOs. It's really incredible. I mean, in terms of sourcing as a whole, I feel that like any sales job, you're sort of doing it all day long. So I could be on a street corner literally and bump into someone who has a startup and that could be my sourcing strategy. Or it could be I'm on Twitter talking about pasta that I made and someone else is jumping in on the pasta train. And now all of a sudden I realize, hey, they're a CEO of a startup. Or maybe they reach out to me and they say, hey, I see you're a VC. I'm fundraising. It really is that random. And I think there's a level of comfort. And I've had specifically women entrepreneurs and also Latinx entrepreneurs share this with me and say, look, I love that you are the first woman or the first Latina that I've talked to in venture since I hit the fundraising trail. And it's just so nice. And I appreciate that because I feel the same way. I love being able to connect with people who have real life experience that they're bringing to the market that they're tackling. I think that's something specifically that I really look for outside of just the sourcing question uh, in terms of where, but who I really love founders who have proximity to their market opportunity that they're solving for. Mm. I think if you don't have some allegiance to your end user and your customer base, then you are doing everyone a disservice. You're not doing much for your investors. You're not doing much for your customers. I think it having that allegiance with your end user and being very close to it from day one is really critical for being able to build a large business and, and to be able to navigate and roll with the punches as the market evolves because it's hard. But all that to say, sourcing is kind of an all-day, everyday job. And I think in terms of having a diverse pipeline, it really is just a matter of existing and being yourself and being open to connecting with people, not based on how they self-identify, but just the fact that they are building something great and you want to learn more about it. I love that. Like the idea that the more of us there are, the more it will beget more of us is just such an obvious, it's an obvious understanding, but it also can't be overstated because the longer we wait to diversify the field of investors, the field of, you know, fund managers and and founding partners, the longer that takes, we're going to have this lagging pool of people that are getting invested in. And it's not a pipeline problem. No. That's the thing. At no. the end of the day, like this is not a pipeline problem. And so we have to stop even acknowledging that as an option. It's just not. And we just need to have more capital that's being deployed into more entrepreneurs and allowing people the room to take risks and to try and build these companies. And if it fails, try again. That's oh, That actually gets me into what I wanted to ask you about. 
next, which is, you know, we ask everyone who comes on the show, what is the number one obstacle facing BIPOC entrepreneurs right now, in particular in the tech space or startup world? And I, I loved your answer to this question. You said it was the lack of room to experiment and fail along their path to success. I would just love to have you talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say that. Yeah. So it's, again, multi-layered cake that we all have. First of all, if you are a founder and you're a first-time founder and you're going out to build a business, from the investor perspective, there's always a series of risks that we're evaluating with any company. And one of those things can be execution risk. And it can also lead investors to have a bias towards repeat founders. We at Mucker don't have any bias towards repeat founders. We've invested in quite a few first-time founders who have gone on to to be at the helm of multi-billion dollar businesses. So we know that the data does not corroborate, I guess, (laughs) neglecting first-time founders because we've been the benefactors of of those first-time founders. So I think generally speaking, there's this question of risk and first-time founders may have some execution risk in that they don't know what they don't know going into building a company and navigating some of those some of those big questions that they'll be faced with but at the same time there's a lot of benefit to being a fresh kind of fresh slate if you will because if you can problem solve and you can be scrappy and think on your feet and not get so discouraged that you just give up then you can do it you can go out and figure out the answers and fight your way along, you know, along the way and so forth. So I think it's less about first-time founders and it's really about the risk having to do with markets. And I think for diverse and underrepresented founders, they're oftentimes building and capturing market opportunities that your more kind of traditional Ivy League white male investor might not have any clue about, right? Mm. And because of that, it will be harder. It'll be a harder hill to climb if you have to spend all day, every day explaining that there's this multi-billion dollar market out there that they're still just not going to get. And so because of that, you have this drop-off probably in getting it. And because of that, maybe not raising those funds. So if for some reason you do raise some money and that investor has not backed a founder that is black or Latinx or indigenous or woman, and the rest of their portfolio looks pretty homogenous, you are now carrying the brunt of proving that supporting a minority or diverse founder is worth doing at all, right? It's like, well, this, we, we did make an investment into a diverse founder and it didn't go so well. We won't mm. do that again. That can't happen. That is not how we affect change. And unfortunately, that's the unnecessary burden that's been placed on the backs of founders who have raised in the past. That alone is just not going to move the needle. At the same time, we have new funds that are coming out that are saying, look, we are explicitly investing in diverse-led companies. And because of that, we are raising those funds. A lot of those funds are on the smaller end of the spectrum because they're first-time funds. So that's just going to happen. We're talking 5 million, 10 million, 15, 50, maybe up to hundreds. We have a couple in the low hundreds, but that's now starting to happen. And in reality, what we need to have happen is 
to have probably, I don't know, five to 10 times the Mm. number of funds with that mandate, with that focus. And we need those funds to grow in assets under management over the next decade because it's not just the early funding of pre-seed or seed. We need investors that will write the Series A, Series B, Series D checks into diverse-led companies. And if you have whatever percentage of the population that's still just not going to get those market opportunities, as a founder, you're going to be facing that many more no's. You're going to be limited to probably a smaller pool of funds that do have a mandate for investing in diverse-led companies. And if for some reason they already have an investment in your space, they're going to be conflicted out, or they just aren't aligned on vision for your company, then what are your options? Mm. Right? Like you can Mm -hmm. run out of options really quickly. (laughs) And so we need volume. We need velocity. We need more assets under management. We need to be able to say, look, you get the chance to raise a $2 million seed round rather than fighting for scraps for 250K and still being expected to compete in the market. You need to be able to fail with that $2 million and then have great relationships with your investors anyways, because <laughs> going to zero is happening all the time, by the way, and then work on your next thing. And that's those cohorts of founders who are white male founders who started a decade ago and are now on their fourth company are now getting it. And you see mm. the headlines. And so they needed to fail three times in order to get to the fourth. And that's what we need for diverse founders. Oh, my gosh. I feel like we are not afforded that same. You're so right. I can think of so many examples of people who've been allowed to publicly fail again and again. But we kind of have to get it right on the first pass. Uh, Which is impossible. Impossible. Near impossible. Yeah. And then if our fail, if we fail, then it also shuts the door for the next 20, 30 people who look like us behind us. So there is this kind of like stacked weight of of being successful. Hearing you talk, part of me is wondering if part of this issue, I, I totally agree, not a pipeline issue at all. If part of the issue is just making funds and people who are working and operating in those funds more diverse. How can we make the field of funding and VC and private equity, how can we make that more attractive to more people of color, to more BIPOC people, Latin, Latinx, Indigenous, women, Black? How can we make it more attractive and more um, inclusive, even to let people know about it? Are you seeing anything out there in this world that is exposing people to this career field that is exciting to you? Yes. So Something that was news to me because I did not go to Stanford or Harvard or any of those is that people who attend Ivy League schools are told about and educated about venture capital very early. And because of that, it's a known career opportunity or path that you can pursue. And when you're at other schools, you're likely not hearing about the same opportunities or even know that they exist. I had no clue in college that venture capital was even a thing. It took me a while to even happen upon it. And if I hadn't, I still probably today would have no clue what venture capital was. And so because of that, there are some really exciting projects and programs, HBCU VC, Latinx VC, Harlem Capital. There are fellowships that are being organized by both nonprofits and also by funds to specifically outreach to underrepresented schools. And those can be HBCUs. They could be state schools, community colleges, 
I'm actually really passionate about the community college track because I'm a community college degree holder. I got my AA from Long Beach City College prior to UCI. And so really just having it be visible for a broader spectrum of students and being able to offer up actionable steps. So rather than, hey, here's a resume builder activity at your school, then you're just going to go out and try and apply to jobs, making things more accessible through social media and also just being able to have even self-guided courses. I'm working on one right now that started during 2020 and then had to pause just because of how hectic this past year has been. But trying to provide sort of self-guided how-tos in terms of how to build a career in venture capital or how to pursue one. And I think what makes all of this really hard is that there are no true linear paths anymore. I think any experience, any work experience is actually directly relevant to the job um, just because you can be a healthcare professional and then all of a sudden become a VC who's working on healthcare deals because you have that know-how. There's so many different ways outside of just a purely financial background that you can enter the venture capital career track. But I think it really starts with awareness. And then the second piece is making it accessible through things like fellowships, through self-guided courses, through online communities and so forth. That's beautiful. It's it's almost like if you build it, they will come sort yeah. of approach. I, I That really resonates. Similarly, I did not know at all about venture capital when I went to school. Uh, I think there was just a part of the university that was for that. And then there was the part of the university I was in, which was, you know, thoughts and feelings land. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And so last question, we're just getting to the wrap up. We wanted to talk a little bit about your upcoming project, Unprocess. So you mentioned to us Unprocess. It sounds super connected to what you're describing now about building this awareness and people's tangible and actionable capacity to build a career in this world. Talk to us about it. Yeah. So Unprocess is really about how talent finds their way or feels their way through their career and their professional journey. It, you know, if you're going out to look for a job, yes, build the spreadsheet. Yes, make your target list. Yes, do your research. But at the same time, so much of what goes into forming a career is really the opposite of that. And I think for myself in particular, everything that I've happened upon professionally has been really organic for better or for worse. And I think because of that, it opened my eyes to how people are actually finding their way professionally, but also how hiring really happens. Because when people post a job description online, yes, maybe you have a hiring manager, which is really considered to be a luxury or a recruiter who's running a very organized, buttoned up on schedule process. But in the world of startups, you typically have founders who have zero time. They throw something on the on the internet and then they're emailing people they know to try and get referrals to talent because it's too much work to rifle through hundreds or thousands of applicants. And so what you end up looking at is what I would describe as an unprocessed, right? Like <laughs> you're not running through the thousand applicants, applying some rubric and then triangulating to find the perfect fit. It's really the opposite of that. And I think I would love to see something that talks about that more holistically. And so I'm I'm writing about it. I'm building a tool that's really focused on opportunities and also the talent that's based outside of Silicon Valley and 
trying to, again, throw in a counter narrative around how to build your career. For a bunch of kind of newcomers that are early on in their careers, they're talking about wanting to be in venture capital, but at the same time, there are so many other things that could actually be a better fit for them. It could be taking an entry-level position at a startup. It could be going into sales and just dialing for dollars and learning those skills. I mean, mine was having to go through a 6,000-person database 30 hours a week for, I forget how many months I did the same data entry job, but that's really how I learned who the players were when I had zero network, you know? And those are the types of things that I'd love to be able to introduce and to be able to connect people with their next big thing. This sounds so necessary. I could not agree more. This world, there's so much talent needed in the startup world and the venture world. And it's just so hard to get to the right people and and to get to them in an organized way because the number one thing we don't have in this world is time. Mm-hmm. And this is going to fill exactly what we tell entrepreneurs. This is going to fill the market need. This is going to fulfill the need of the the users and the customers. I'm so excited for this to launch and for us to be able to to share it with people, for you to be able to share it with people. I'm saying us. Uh, let me take that back because I'm saying it like we're doing it together. Yes, we are, though. <laughs> <But> we are. <laughs> we really are. <laughs> we're comrades in this. But yeah. I'm just really glad that this is going to exist. I think it's we've started to see ideas like this pop up in different industries, and it's just so needed in this space. How can people find you? Where can people find you? And then how can founders get in touch with you? Yes. So working backwards, my email is monique at mucker.com. We have all of our emails on the website. We welcome cold inbound. And frankly, a good, healthy portion of our portfolio has just come from completely cold inbound and outbound. We're also reaching out to founders all day long. So that's my email. I also am somewhat active, casually active on Twitter at Monique Via, um, Via as in Victor. I-L-L-A pronounced like Pancho Villa, even though that wasn't his real name. <laughs> and aside from that, I am kind of hibernating during this COVID era. But aside from that, I, I am active online and always happy to hop on a call and, and learn more about what you're building. Perfect. Monique, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We are just really grateful for your time. We're grateful for what you're building. It seems like it's definitely has the potential to reshape the landscape of entrepreneurship for a much more diverse set of influencers at every level. So thank you. Thank you. This is so much fun. Thank you for listening to Twin Day Rethinking Entrepreneurship, a podcast that features conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. We want this show to support you and reflect the realities that entrepreneurs face every day. So your feedback is much appreciated. If you have any questions about this episode or ideas for future topics, please email me at brin.plumber at ec.co. For a recap and transcript of this episode, and to learn more about the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, including the Twin Day program, go to twindaytn.co slash podcast. That's T-W-E-N-D-E-T-N dot C-O slash podcast. If you learned something from today's episode, please follow, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you again to the David and Rebecca Clements family for the generous support that makes this podcast possible. Until next time.